Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Welcome back, dear listeners. This is season two of Monkey Block. In season one, we covered the beginning of California's occupation, starting with the Spanish in 1776 and ended with Mexico's Alta California in 1846. I want to start season two by revisiting some of the already covered Yerba Buena history, but this time from a first-hand perspective. There are only a few foreigners who lived in Yerba Buena long enough to see the province go from Spanish to Mexican to American rule. A person who lived through all that would have a unique perspective of early Yerba Buena and California history. William Heath Davis is the most famous Yerba Buena San Francisco resident you've never heard of. During the 1840s, Davis was one of the most well-regarded Americans living in Yerba Buena of the pre-gold Alta California. He was well-respected, successful, influential, but his name and memory faded into the background of San Francisco's history. He's also the original founding father of Newtown, San Diego, and San Leandro, and almost the same could be said of Oakland. Davis's memoir, Kind of Diary, 75 Years in California, reads like a who's who of California history. He knew and did business with just about every Yerba Buena resident I've mentioned so far. Actually, actually all of them. The only way to tell Davis's story is to directly relay Yerba Buena and early San Francisco history. He's that ingrained in all the politics, the business, the people, and the stories of the time. There's so much to tell because Davis liked to write and capture his history. He was also involved in a lot of business deals, and he was close friends with lots of important people whose names I've mentioned in season one. So there's a lot of content left for posterity. It's been a fascinating venture learning about him. Davis's story helped me connect the early California and Yerba Buena dots. His story really brought the history of Yerba Buena to life, as he was either directly involved or witness to every Yerba Buena story I've previously conveyed. Having said that, I'm only going to tell Davis's story up until 1846, because that's where I left off in season one. That's going to cover topics I've previously described, but this will be from an insider's view, which is helpful to understanding the place and time. Today's episode is possible with the help of the San Francisco Main Library and the sixth floor staff. This is the history floor, so if you like San Francisco history and you want to see rare archival material, you need to visit them. 
Today's episode is mostly based on 75 Years in California by William Heath Davis and also An American in California, the biography of William Heath Davis, 1822 through 1909 by Andrew F. Roll. Davis's story starts with his father, Captain William Heath Davis Sr. There's a lot of backstory to tell today, so are you ready? Here we go. By 1811, Captain William Heath Davis Sr. was an accomplished Boston-based merchant ship's captain involved in the California coast trade for sea otter skins. Davis Jr. believed his father was one of the first, if not the first, Boston traders in California. I'm not going to research this point, so I'll just leave it with Davis's thoughts and my disclaimer that I can't substantiate that claim. I will say the majority of American ships coming to California were actually from Boston, so his claim may not be totally impossible. Davis Sr. was a popular and successful merchant, fluent in Spanish, having studied Spanish at school in Boston, which indicates his father was a man of means and education. This would also explain at least some of Davis Sr.'s success in the early days of California trading. Recall, Davis Sr. started trading in California in 1811. And I'm aware of trading in the San Francisco Bay as early as 1813. So this would be during the mission period of California. A charming legacy about Davis Sr. was how well he was known for inviting the California missionaries, government officials, and rancheros onto his ship and providing them with presents and luxuries from his ship's store. Please note I am saying the ship's store because at this time in California, we don't have merchant stores on land. I'll say more about that later. Don Ignacio Martinez told Davis Jr. about his visits with Davis's father. Martinez recounted being overwhelmed with the kindness and entertainment he was met with on board Davis Sr.'s vessel, and that he could only accept half of what was offered with such grace and generosity. As I read this, this generosity also sounds like getting in the good graces of those you pay cargo taxes to, but also as a way to distract the cargo tax collectors. It was a known strategy to entertain on one part of the ship while your crew smuggled the cargo out of the other side of the ship. Another tactic before pulling into port was to remove half of your merchandise to a ship that had already paid the cargo fees and taxes because money had already been collected for that ship. And then you'd come back to that ship and retrieve your merchandise. Or... You could leave your merchandise on shore just far enough from the actual location to pay fees. Then you would pay a reduced amount and then go back and retrieve your conveniently stored items. The most boring of all the strategies was just to bribe the inspector and tax collector. My favorite strategy, though, was to delay the inspectors by leaving them unattended in a room that was on the ship that was well-stocked with fine brandy and cigars. I like that one best. Davis Sr. was well-known for being a smuggler, so I might not be far from the truth with my hunch. 
in most cases, it was a win-win situation, so no one was complaining. Davis never forgot that story about the father he never knew and would adopt much of his father's life as a merchant and his legacy with the same grace and generosity. Wink, wink. Because Davis Sr. was so well-known and liked all along the California coast, Davis Jr. learned a lot about his father directly from the people who knew him. And that was a lot of people, which is an endearing legacy to leave behind for a son who wants to know more about the father he never met. Davis Jr.'s mother, Hannah Holmes, also has an interesting background. She was half Hawaiian and grew up in the Sandwich Islands. Hannah Holmes was the daughter of Oliver Holmes, who was an early shipping pioneer to the New England, China, and Northwest American trade via the Sandwich Islands. I'm sensing a trend here. Hannah's father, Oliver Holmes, made the Sandwich Islands his permanent residence after two years of traveling to Hawaii, and he really ingrained himself into the culture and was at one point granted governorship of Oahu by King Kamehameha I, becoming the third governor of Oahu. Oliver Holmes, as governor, goes on to marry into the royal Hawaiian family by marrying Princess Mahi Oh, I can't say her last name. She was the daughter of the high chief of Ku'alau. And I'll apologize to anyone I've offended with my terrible pronunciation. I'm definitely outside of my Spanish comfort zone. William Heath Davis is one quarter Kanaka of Hawaiian blood, which is a detail of his personal life he kept mostly to himself for what I'm sure were political and social reasons. As a side note, Hawaiians in Yerba Buena and California were seen and utilized very similarly to the Indians, and that is to say, slave labor. With history, you have to consider place and time, and that was a place that used Hawaiians as slave labor during a time when, despite being the son and stepson of very accomplished and respected merchant traders, Davis chose to keep his quarter kanaka to himself. Davis did make a point of letting people know he was named after his honorable father and his uncle, another William Davis. He proudly let people know that his uncle was one of George Washington's generals, and his stepfather, John Coffin, was one of the first Bostonian families whose relative was said to be the first person to step foot off the Mayflower onto Plymouth Rock. If that last point is true, that's extraordinary. Davis Jr. presented the affluent three-quarter Anglo-American side of himself, but failed to mention the quarter Kanaka side. Class and social standing were put forward, but not his royal Kanaka blood, which is interesting, but I guess not surprising. As I mentioned, Davis Sr. died when Davis Jr. was a year old. John Coffin, Davis Jr.'s stepfather, was a, no surprise, successful shipping merchant in Honolulu. Coffin was a close friend of Davis Sr., so after Davis's death, he married Davis Jr.'s mother, Hannah Holmes. Davis Jr. grew up in Hawaii with his mother and stepfather, well ingrained in the culture and the society. 
1831, now nine years old, Davis Jr. travels to California for the first time with his stepfather. And he visits for a second time in 1833. For perspective, Davis would have witnessed California's slowly dying mission system, which would have been the opposite of what his father would have seen. Coffin was well-remembered for caring for Davis as if Davis was his own son. That shows respect to Davis Sr. that his close friend would care for his family after his death. Okay, so backstory is almost done. From this point forward, when I say Davis, I will mean Davis Jr. And now one more story. The missions had historically served as a mini trading post for the hide and tallow trading. But after mission secularization, there was a void. There was nowhere to trade goods until in 1831, the same year Davis visits California for the first time, Nathan Spear and his partners create what I believe is California's first land-based merchant store in Monterey versus the currently existing business model of ship-based merchant stores. The stores were on the incoming visiting ships, which made trading very temporary. It makes perfect sense to open the merchant store in Monterey, which is where ships are legally required to stop and pay cargo taxes and fees, which is assuming you don't bypass Monterey and go straight to Yerba Buena, or... If you do stop in Monterey, it assumes you're not executing one of the many smuggling tactics. The idea to open a permanent merchant store on land was a game changer for Californios and the existing trading business. Californios were no longer at the mercy of getting word of an arriving ship and then having to rush to the waterfront to meet incoming ships for hide and tallow trading. Some people were traveling far distances to get to the ships. So if you weren't amongst the first traders with the ships, you had to pick from what was left, if anything at all. Having a permanent store meant people could buy their silk, shoes, furniture, musical instruments, sugar, coconuts, cigars, brandy, any day the store was open. But it was also advantageous to the ships, as they didn't have to rely on people hearing about their arrival to conduct trading. It also, for the ships, provided a reliable and safe place to dock the ships. Spear and Company found a niche market being the go-between for the trading ships in the Californios. California banknotes, also known as dried cowhides, were used as currency, but Spear also used actual currency. Without a doubt, the Californios had sophisticated taste and not enough hides and tallow to support their lifestyle. Champagne taste on a Haydn tallow budget? I, I couldn't resist. So credit was just about always extended to permanent Californios. You owe me 200 hides and five live steer for this piano and XYZ amount of tallow. I just made up that amount. I don't have any idea how many hides and pounds of tallow would buy a piano. The moral of that story was that the Californios traded hides and tallow with the store. The store would use the hide and tallow to trade for the goods from the ships and then turn around and trade the items back to the Californios for more hides and tallow. All of this background is interesting, but there's a Yerba Buena connection. Spear, a major player, 
in California's growing hide and tallow trading business had a falling out with the other partners and realized there was an untapped opportunity in the already existing Yerba Buena trading business. For reference, Yerba Buena was formally established in 1835. So in 1838, Spear leaves Monterey, and along with his new business partners, Jacob Primer Lease and William Sturgis Hinckley, they open a merchant store in the business-developing, but not population-growing, Yerba Buena. The store was located at the northwest corner of current-day Clay and Montgomery Streets. This area was once a beach that, in the near future, would be called Montgomery Beach once there was a Montgomery Street. Spear and his business partners are among the first settlers inhabitants of Yerba Buena. So roll call on Yerba Buena in 1838. We have William Richardson, Juana Briones, Jacob Primer Lease, William Sturgis Hinckley, John C. Fuller, Jose Casares, and Nathan Spear. The official deeds that I came across at the library show that Nathan Spear owned lot number two and lot number 19 and a half. The store was on lot number two and the earliest records I can find stated Spear owned these lots in 1847, but we know where his store was located in 1838 and that was on lot number two. So I have to assume there weren't records for this, but that it was commonly accepted as his lots. Unfortunately, in one of the many fires of early Yerba Buena in San Francisco, many of the records were lost. So half of the households in Yerba Buena own this new store, but they didn't open up a store just to sell to four families. The number of buildings and the population of Yerba Buena were never indicative of the commerce that was coming in and out of the cove. This store catered to the incoming ships and the traveling Californios who lived farther out. I came across a letter from Don Francisco de Haro, which captures the place and time of Yerba Buena in 1838. It's the letter of Francisco de Haro to the five merchants of Yerba Buena, provided from the California Historical Society in 1935, and it was translated. I have a link to this letter in my transcript. The letter states that the only five men in Yerba Buena on October 29th, 1838, are being called to act as a guard at the crumbling Mission Dolores, as there wasn't a jail yet. The five men in Yerba Buena, that's, you know, obviously everyone except Juana Briones, are called to guard Jose Antonio Galindo, who was guilty of murdering Jose Peralta. But... This idea must have gone over like a lead balloon because three months later, Dajaro writes a letter to the governor asking for assistance in this matter. Dajaro to Governor Juan B. Alvarado. From the scattered condition of the inhabitants of the place, from the fact that each one has his agricultural and stock interests at a great distance from this place, the results are that there are few remaining to guard the criminal, Jose Antonio Galindo and these persons cannot spare the time from their personal business. These facts induce me to consult your excellency in relation to the removal of the said Galindo to the Pueblo of San Jose, since at that place there is a Pueblo Unido, 
United People. Processing the means of obtaining assistance and other circumstances wanting at this place, such as a jail and the means of subsistence, for these reasons, I think it's advisable to remove said Galindo to San Jose. Your Excellency will be pleased, however, to resolve in relation to the matter and determine what is necessary to be done in the premises. God in Liberty, Francisco de Haro, San Francisco, February 27th, 1839. A few things are interesting about the letter. One is that the letter calls out all the men living in Yerba Buena, all five of them, and it points out that Yerba Buena doesn't have a jail because crime was very low to non-existent, so a jail wasn't needed. I also am taking note of the fact he said San Francisco in 1839. Now, just as a reminder, this was commonly called the District of San Francisco after the Mission San Francisco de Assis, even though there was the Pueblo of Yerba Buena. Both things existed at the same time, and actually the District of San Francisco predates Yerba Buena. I didn't look into the murder of Jose Peralta, but Jose Antonio Galindo was a multi-lot owner in Yerba Buena. His name came up a few times in early official records. All of this is interesting, but the episode is about William Heath Davis. So the connection is that Nathan Spear is Davis's uncle by marriage. In 1838, the year the Yerba Buena store opens, 17-year-old Davis arrives in Yerba Buena and begins working at his uncle's store as the main shopkeeper. Dropping out of school in the Sandwich Islands against his father's strongly expressed wishes. An interesting side note, when the Haro wrote that letter about the five guards, Davis, now a resident of Yerba Buena, was 17 years old. And that's likely why Davis wasn't being asked to be a sixth guard at Mission Dolores. So would you look at that? I'm out of time for today, and I'm just getting started on the life and times of William Heath Davis. A second episode on Davis will be coming up very soon. Davis is intimately linked to Yerba Buena history, and to tell his story is to relay the story of Yerba Buena from a personal position, and that's what I plan to do in my next episode. To recap, Davis comes from a line of merchant traders. His generational family ties to merchant shipping put him ahead of other shipping merchant traders in the Boston, the Sandwich Island, and California coast. Davis inherits a leg up in California and Yerba Buena via his late father's favorable reputation and his uncle's successful trading business. Davis's life was set up for success whether he stayed in the Sandwich Islands, went to college in New England, or moved to the budding waterfront town of Yerba Buena. But for now, Davis is a fresh faced teenager, newly arrived from the Sandwich Islands with a promising job at a merchant store in a waterfront town that's about to explode. In my next episode, I'll cover Davis's life from 1838 to 1846. Additionally, dear listener, now with the COVID restrictions loosening up, I will start using a new way of bringing history to life. So tune into my next episode to learn more as we venture into the story of Yerba Buena and William Heath Davis. You can read today's transcript and locate the cited sources at monkeyblocksf.buzzsprout.com. Please bookmark or favorite this podcast to be alerted when new episodes are released. 
You can visit MonkeyBlock to comment on a specific episode at facebook.com forward slash monkeyblocksf or twitter.com forward slash monkeyblocksf. Or you can email me directly at monkeyblocksf at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is MonkeyBlock, retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's Golden Past. <laughs>